On June 24, 1947, while flying in his plane near Mount Rainier in Washington, Kenneth Arnold spotted nine objects flying at a high rate of speed. It was a bright blue-white light that had caught his attention, and he observed all nine objects for approximately two minutes before they disappeared over Oregonian airspace. When Arnold stopped to refuel in Pendleton, Oregon, he described seeing eight circular-shaped objects, with the ninth being more crescent-shaped. He clocked them at roughly 1,500 miles per hour. Kenneth Arnold's sighting would go down as the first of the modern era, ushering in an age of crash saucers, Venus's false identity as a UFO, and numerous unconvincing pieces of video footage shot with shaky hands against night skies. But Arnold's great greatest contribution to the UFO mythology is actually a mistake. When describing the motion of the craft to the East Oregonian newspaper, he said they moved like a saucer if you skip it across water. This description was misquoted by the paper, and when it was picked up across the Associated Press newswire, the term flying saucer was born. It would only be used as a descriptor for about six years, until Captain Edward Ruppelt, the Project Blue Book darling, would coin the term unidentified flying object. But in that short amount of time, flying saucer denoted something that was physical and contained occupants from other planets. In other words, it was a poor representation of just how ambiguous the subject can be and continues to be. It was also confusing, as not all flying saucers were in actuality saucers. All of this invites questions as to what we are dealing with. Questions like, what is a UFO? What really happened at Roswell? Is that ancient aliens dude with the crazy hair for real? What do we even talk about when we talk about UFOs? We'll be getting into all that, but let's start first with the basic question. Just what is a UFO? I will attempt to answer that question now. What's up, UFOnauts? Welcome to the Our Strange Skies Podcast. UFO phenomenon is one of the most puzzling aspects of the human experience. Answers are not easily justifiable, and truth is a shaky thing. The truth is, I don't think we'd know what the truth looked like if the truth were truly in our grasp. In other words, the truth is really subjective when it comes to the UFO phenomenon. No one really knows what we're seeing when we look up and witness something really strange in our skies. At the very least, we can discern patterns, and it's in those patterns that UFOs exist. With this episode, my intention is to provide an introduction for those unfamiliar with the subject and lay the groundwork for what's to come. To start, we need a working definition of a UFO. For this, I defer to one of the key pioneers of UFO research, Dr. J. Allen Hynek, in his book, The UFO Experience. He states, We could define the UFO simply as the reported perception of an object or light seen in the sky or upon the land, the appearance, trajectory, and general dynamic and luminescent behavior of which do not suggest a logical, conventional explanation, and which is not only mystifying to the original percipients, but remains unidentified after close scrutiny of all available evidence by persons who are technically capable of making a common-sense identification, if one is possible. The key word here is perception, and not object. The word haunts the term, and makes the meaning of the phrase kind of ambiguous. Essentially, a UFO boils down to a few components. Something mysterious is seen in the sky or on the ground. A person who sees it, and people who try to explain it. If no explanation is possible, it then qualifies as a UFO. 
A UFO report, though, generally lacks four of the five senses and relies solely on the visual component of the word object to give the phenomenon its various forms. It's rare that any other sensory data is observed. Often there is no sound or smell. It's rare that people report physically touching a craft, though it has been done. And to date, no one has ever licked a UFO, so taste is kind of out of the question here. As an aside, if you have the opportunity, please don't lick a UFO! You have no idea where that thing has been. The definition of a UFO requires an object to act in strange ways and do stuff that no normal aircraft known to mankind can do. As such, there are patterns and characteristics to UFOs. These patterns and characteristics include the ability to travel at impossibly fast speeds, the ability to hover in the air and remain motionless, the ability to take off smoothly, accelerate to high rates of speed quickly, while failing to create a sonic boom, they tend to come in various shapes and sizes, and if you believe Bob Lazar, there's even a sport model. These shapes include disc-shaped, saucer-shaped, oval-shaped, cigar-shaped, triangular, and many more. Those are just the popular ones. They generally appear to be metallic or white in color. At night, they appear as lights in the sky of varying colors. If flying low enough, sometimes shapes can be observed. And sometimes they appear as orbs of varying colors uh, with no discernible shape at all. A series of UFO sightings that occurs over a period of time is called a flap. Uh, the most uh, famous case in the United States of a flap happened in the Hudson Valley of New York in the 1980s. Uh, I'll be covering that one eventually. When we talk about this phenomenon, one of the most fascinating aspects is that there's generally a lack of vocabulary to describe it. So when it comes to reporting them, generally a witness begins with the phrase, I've never seen anything like this in my life. When describing a craft, witnesses have been, I've said at times, it looked like a stunted dill pickle. Or it looked like a silvery hamburger sandwich. I am not joking. If you read The UFO Experience by J. Allen Hynek, there are people that talk about UFOs, seeing UFOs in that context. But how, however, the UFO field is not actually that much better in terms of describing the craft. Because uh, to begin, we had the term saucer, flying saucer. Um, but also a, a long cylindrical craft is generally called a cigar. But generally, when you talk about people who report UFOs, there are uh, characteristics that we look for. They need to be a reputable person. Sometimes they try to force natural explanations on unnatural phenomena. It's definitely the mind struggling to make sense of, of what has happened to them, what they have seen. And many are deeply impacted by these sightings. Sightings generally fall into one of six categories. These were also discerned by J. Allen Hynek. He's kind of the darling of this episode. We really get a lot of our knowledge, at least what we have about UFOs, from Dr. J. Allen Hynek. So the first type of sighting is a nocturnal light. And he says of nocturnal lights, The typical nocturnal light is a bright light, not a point source, of indeterminate linear size and of varying color but most usually yellowish-orange. Although no color of the spectrum has been consistently absent, which follows a path not ascribed to a balloon, aircraft, or other natural object, and which often gives the appearance of intelligent action. The light gives no direct evidence of being attached to a solid body, but presumably may be. 
this is the most common type of sighting, and it's also generally the first to be ruled out. They don't have a very high survival rate. One of the most famous examples of uh, nocturnal lights uh, is the Phoenix lights. Uh, Thursday, March 13th, 1997, a mass UFO sighting takes place over Arizona. It was seen by hundreds of people. Witnesses also claimed to see a V-shaped craft that it was flying low enough to actually make out a shape. Even their mayor saw this thing, and they tried to calm people down by having this really jokey press conference where one of the members of his cabinet dressed up as an alien and the the blame was laid on him it was kind of funny but really stupid also we also have the the next sighting is the daylight disc these are simply reports of craft during the daytime we've kind of gone over how they act the most famous of these kind of sightings of course is kenneth arnold's in 1947 of course that's where we get flying saucer from. Flying saucer, yeah. Okay. The third type is radar visual sightings. These sightings are exclusive to pilots and others that work in the aviation field. Uh, they tend to be very rare because pilots are often dissuaded from reporting UFO sightings, uh, generally in fear of being grounded to a desk job, but also for military personnel, they could be drummed out of the military, made to be discharged but radar data alone here is not sufficient enough to make a credible sighting mostly because there are natural phenomena that has a tendency to muck up data but when paired with the visual sighting in the air it makes for a really strong ufo case the most well-known right now comes from uh two gentlemen commander david fravor and lieutenant commander jim slate who were asked to investigate unusual radar hits and when they met at that point, they witnessed a tic-tac-shaped craft. This has been making the rounds in the, in the news lately, and I'll, I'll put a link to in the show notes for this. The next category of sightings that we get to is, of course, the Close Encounters. If you've seen the film Close Encounters of the Third Kind, you're kind of generally familiar with this. A Close Encounter of the First Kind is a UFO reported at close range, generally less than 500 feet. And you can often discern a lot of detail. The second kind of encounter is a an encounter where physical effects are are left or are visible. They could be markings on the ground, burns, paralysis in humans has known has been known to happen. Psychological effects on humans and animals. A fear response is the most common one, but also a general calm uh, has been reported as well. Interference with TV and radio reception. If you want a great example of a CE2, that's the smaller acronym for it. Check out Astonishing Legends episodes on the Delphus Ring. It's a really fun case, and there's a dog, and dogs are awesome, so go check that out. And now we get to the big one, the most exciting ones, the close encounter of the third kind. Now, when we get to this, this is the most contentious subject matter in the UFO field. It casts deep ridicule because at this point you're basically saying that UFOs are a physical craft and there are occupants. And you've seen those occupants. You may have interacted with those occupants. But uh, about the CE3, uh, you know, it's Hynek's classification, but he had trouble believing it. So uh, this is what Hynek has to say in the book about CE3s. 
There is no logical reason, yet I confess to sharing a prejudice that is hard to explain. It is the confrontation on the animate level that disturbs and repulses us. Perhaps as long as it is our own intelligence that contemplates the report of a machine, albeit strange, we still somehow feel superior in such contemplation. Encounters with animate beings, possibly with an intelligence of different order from ours, gives a new dimension to our atavistic fear of the unknown. It brings with it the specter of competition for territory, loss of planetary hegemony, fears that have deep roots. Another thing bothers us. The humanoids seem to be able to breathe our air and to adapt to our air pressure and gravity with little difficulty. Something seems terribly wrong about that. This would imply that they must be from a place, another planet, very much like our own. Perhaps our own, but how? Or are they robots not needing to adapt to our environment? It's clear that <laughs> Hynek is very conflicted about this designation, but there are cases that ultimately convince him of the the potential for this type of encounter. And if you've heard me talk on podcasts, you've heard me talk about the one case that made him a believer. And it's the case of Lonnie Zamora of Socorro, New Mexico. I'm not going to get into it in great detail here, just because it's going to be a future episode. But essentially, Lonnie Zamora, he was a police officer with uh, the Socorro, New Mexico Police Department. He was in a high-speed chase with a car heading south of town when he heard a roaring sound and he saw something coming down in the sky and he drove towards it. And when he got near it, he th he assumed at first that it was a turned-over car. But what it actually ended up being was a craft, an, ov an oval-shaped craft that had landed. There were occupants outside the craft doing whatever you know, soil samples, what have you. But this is one of my all-time favorite cases, so we'll be getting into this in the future. So when it comes to what these things are, there are three main competing hypotheses. Uh, the first is the extraterrestrial hypothesis. This is the hypothesis that believes that these are physical craft and they are piloted by people from other planets. And largely uh, the field of ufology has been in bed with this hypothesis for decades, at least since the early 1940s. But uh, a lot of it stems from science fiction, things like War of the Worlds. You know, when we think of War of the Worlds, these aliens come from another planet to wreak havoc on our own. Think of the movie Independence Day, however bad that movie is. Aliens, they're coming. They're coming for us. They're coming for our resources. They're coming to kill us. But also, too, this was bolstered by people like Charles Fort, too, back in the early 1900s, 1920s, and 1930s. And it's also been exploited tremendously on television. Think of the shows like Ancient Aliens. Yes, Ancient Aliens, with Giorgio Tsoukalos' big hair, David Childress saying the phrase, some kind, a lot. It also uses pseudoscience to bolster its claims, and that's not a good thing. There isn't anything tangible to be found there. The second competing hypothesis is the psychosocial hypothesis, which argues that there are psychological and social factors for these type of sightings, and included in the hypothesis are misperceptions of celestial objects, of course, like Venus, who is, which has been, you know, 
people mistake that thing for a planet all the time. Airplane lights, balloons, atmospheric effects, basically the normal things that you would use to rule out mundane, you know, the mundane things that you would rule out uh, a UFO with. Uh, also included are blatant hoaxes, hallucinations, and visionary dreams. Ever had a dream of a alien abduction? You don't want it. And it's still just a dream at that point. This type of hypothesis largely came into fruition in the uh, in the 70s and 80s, mostly in Europe, although it has, you know, made its way over to the States by now. The third is the interdimensional hypothesis. And this hypothesis claims that UFOs and, and other related events are visitors from other realities or alternate dimensions that exist alongside our own. It also proposes that UFOs are a modern manifestation of a phenomenon that has been occurring throughout recorded human history and is what our ancestors considered mythology and its supernatural effects. Uh, this hypothesis has largely been championed by people like uh, Jacques Vallée and John Keel. John Keel uh, coined the phrase ultra-terrestrials to describe them. And this hypothesis came to fruition around the same time that the psychosocial hypothesis came into being. The second section we're getting to here is something I like to call the contact phenomenon. I don't use the phrase abductee contactee and experiencer the way most people do. I feel like they mean three totally different things that a lot of UFO researchers and such will use those terms interchangeably and I I don't feel like you can. I just uh, there's just something about it that uh, that makes me feel like you can't do that. So, here are my what I will be using these terms as going forward and i understand if most people don't agree with the way that i use these terms but that's fine so an abductee abductee are people who interpret their experiences in a negative way there is a general pattern with an abduction case where people claim to be taken against their will by otherworldly beings on board a craft where they are experimented on however given all that is described here not all may choose to view an experience like this in a negative light. Some may come away believing that they have just had a religious experience or may have a completely positive spin on things, which is pretty much why I'm hesitating to make consider all abductees the same. No, they don't all view their experiences the same as far as I'm concerned. And in numerous interviews I've watched with people who have had contact with otherworldly beings there are varying degrees of how they feel about their experiences technically these would be classified as a close encounter of the fourth kind although i'm probably going to avoid using that phrase going forward and then there are the contactees contactees are people who interpret their experience in a positive way the rise of the contactees happened mostly in the 50s and the 60s with people claiming to have contact with what they call space brothers. That's the term that was thrown around. And also, they were generally from the planet Venus, but they would show up in silver ships to tell us how we can be better human beings and that the survival of our planet depends on it. Many of these type of sightings would actually lead to the formation of cults like George Adamski and, and Orfeo Angelucci, which uh, Astonishing Legends also did a great episode on. The most famous cult, of course, is the Heaven's Gate cult, uh, and you know that story. I'm, well, at least I'm sure you do. 
With the contactee type of experience, though, there is a general free will aspect to it all, and that these otherworldly beings interact with people in non-threatening ways. So, moving on, we now reach the experiencer, and the experiencer is someone who interprets their experience as neutral, being neither negative or positive. Yeah, so there are the three classifications of people who claim to have contact. And by request of Sarah of the Good Nightmare podcast, what introductory episode of a podcast about UFOs would be complete without a short list of alleged alien species that humans have had contact with? Oh, yeah. There's aliens. Uh, The first is the greys. The greys are the most common type of alien species reported interacting with humans, most often in abduction-like scenarios. They range from anywhere three to five feet tall. They're generally hairless, slender, with skin that appears gray in color. It also looks sickly, like it's very chalky. Like if you went went over and touched them, like you would take their skin off. It's kind of weird, and these people have the power to take you. They, the most notable thing about them is that they have really abnormally large heads with large almond-shaped black eyes that haunt the shit out of you. They also don't really have a mouth. There's an appearance of a mouth, but uh, yeah, I don't know if they have a mouth really. Uh, And they have two holes for a nose. It's almost like their appearance is designed to kind of calm people down. So, yeah, they also tend to have telepathic abilities. Most of these aliens are going to have telepathic abilities. Moving on to the Nordics. The Nordics are generally six to eight feet tall and generally have blonde hair and blue eyes. And it's believed that the early Scandinavians and the Nordic peoples of Europe actually shared genes with these people. Not joking. If you read the book that I did, which is called The Extraterrestrial Compendium by Patley... It is a fun read, let me tell you. It's also a frightening read because uh, it, it's basically a book that depicts aliens that are supposed that supposedly had contact with uh, humans. And the, the most frightening thing about it is that he actually gives the attitudes towards hu- towards humanity of each species. So some are but uh, a lot are benevolent, and there are some that are malevolent, and others that are neutral. Interesting how that mirrors kind of the the contact phenomenon itself with people. And of course, there are the reptilians. Reptilians are humanoids that have reptile features, of course, including scaly green skin and yellow eyes. They are also generally extremely tall, reaching up to heights of 15 feet tall. Best of all, they have shape-shifting abilities. That's um, that's why most of the people that are involved in the grand conspiracy happening all around us and the Illuminati, people like the Queen of England and supposedly Hillary Clinton and Barack Obama. Yeah, they're reptilians and they have the ability to shapeshift. I actually read somewhere that Lord is, is a reptilian and the one man who has plagued me most of my life, Chris Christopherson, the one guy I'm asked, am I related to? According to a list on Wikipedia, he is a reptilian. So hell no, I am not related to Chris Christopherson and don't bother asking. Sorry, but uh, it's a touchy subject now. Um, of course, the main supporter of this theory is David Icke. And if you haven't 
seen my meltdown about a the David Icke DVD that I watched for a little while. I encourage you to go find that on Twitter using the hashtag Ike, I-C-K-E, Mutwa, M-U-T-W-A, W-T-F. It is gold, comedy gold, and it's, um, yeah, just go check it out. There are, of course, the Venusians. Venusians resemble Nordics, of course. They're tall, blonde-haired, blue-eyed. Again, and they also communicate telepathically. Of course, the most famous Venusian is Valiant Thor. I'm sure we'll be getting into Valiant Thor at some point, but yeah, there was a Venusian named Valiant Thor, and he had connections in Washington, D.C. back in the 50s. That's right, there was an alien in Washington in the 50s. Yeah, um, okay, Uh, that was a bit, uh, that was a bit much, I know. And, of course, now we're on to the Arcturians. Uh, the Arcturian race are believed to be about the size of children, three to four feet tall, with pale green skin and large, dark, almond-shaped eyes with only three fingers on each hand. So they kind of resemble grays in a way, except their skin is a different color and their eyes aren't as big. But, hey, guess what? They speak telepathically. Do you hear that? I tried to speak telepathically to you all right now, and I and I hope uh, I hope you got that message. It was a positive one. It's also believed that Arcturians can transcend their physical form. So, like when I was reading the extraterrestrial compendium, Pat Lee talked about how the ones that exist in their physical bodies could actually talk to ones that had transcended their body through telepathy, and my mind just kind of melted. When I when I heard when I read that, uh, yeah. And now to the final one that I'm going to make mention of, the Pleiadians. It is believed that Nordics are technically Pleiadian, but there is also another type of Pleiadian that is a ninth dimensional light being. Yes, light being composed of light. Oh yeah, they go around the galaxy promoting love and galactic peace. They are known to be relentless against plasma. That's one for you, Lowdown Crew. At this point, I want to address two more things before I wrap this episode up. The first is a brief overview of some of the civilian UFO groups. They're going to be coming up in reports again and again and again, so I just kind of want to give you a little bit of background about some of them. Not a whole hell of a lot, but... uh, There's the Center for UFO Studies, or QFOS. This was founded by J. Allen Hynek, uh, you know, because I love this man. I love him! It it was founded in 1973, and it's still largely active today. There's the Mutual UFO Network, or MUFON, as it is known. And for $60 plus, you could become a member of MUFON. It's the most well-known civilian UFO group by far. And there are famous people that are members, including Henry Zabrowski and the one Chris Cogswell. There's the Aerial Research Organization, uh, also known as APRO, and it was founded by Jim and Coral Lorenzen, and it was around from 1952 to 1988. This group was one that stressed scientific research. They stressed the hell out of it, and I missed them for it. Granted, I was only five years old when they folded, so... 
And there's also the National Investigations Committee on Aerial Phenomenon, or NICAP. They were around from the 50s to the 80s as well. They initially stressed scientific research, but they also, later on, towards the end of their tenure, they they really went hard on the CE3-type sightings. Humanoids, man. All about them humanoids. These are just the four most common. I, I'm sure at some point there will be others that I'll be addressing. The last thing I want to address is is a term that is really important to UFO research, and it's a term called high strangeness, and it's and it's one that's thrown around a lot. Essentially, high strangeness is are really odd events that challenge a person to a person's conception of our reality. Things so strange that they that they almost seem like they couldn't happen. So I'm going to close this out with a... It, this is Dr. J. Allen Hynek addressing the United Nations on November 27th, 1978, about the UFO phenomenon. He kind of gets into the basis uh, in, in the beginning here of what high strangeness is. So, Mr. Chairman, there exists today a worldwide phenomenon... Indeed, if it were not worldwide, I should not be addressing you and these representatives from many parts of the world. There exists a global phenomenon, the scope and extent of which is not generally recognized. It is a phenomenon so strange and foreign to our daily terrestrial mode of thought that is frequently met by ridicule and derision by persons and organizations unacquainted with the facts. I refer, of course, to the phenomenon of UFOs, unidentified flying objects which I should like to define here simply as any aerial or surface sighting or instrumental recording, e.g. radar, photography, etc., which remains unexplained by conventional methods even after competent examination by qualified persons. You will note, Mr. Chairman, that this definition says nothing about little green men from outer space or manifestations from spiritual realms or various psychic manifestations. It simply states an operational definition. A cardinal mistake and a source of great confusion has been the almost universal substitution of an interpretation of the UFO phenomenon for the phenomenon itself. This is akin to having ascribed the aurora borealis to angelic communication before we understood the physics of the solar wind. Nonetheless, in the popular mind, the UFO phenomenon is associated with the concept of extraterrestrial intelligence, and this might yet prove to be correct in some context. We have on record many tens of thousands of UFO reports. They include extremely intriguing and provocative accounts of strange events experienced by highly reputable persons, events which challenge our present conception of the world about us, and which may indeed signal a need for a change in some of these concepts. Mr. Chairman, any phenomenon who touches the lives of so many people, which engenders puzzlement and even fear among them, is therefore not only of potential scientific interest and significance, but also of sociological and political significance, since it carries with it many implications of the existence of intelligence other than our own. Speaking then for myself as an astronomer, and I believe for many of my colleagues as well, there is no longer any question in my mind of the importance of this subject. Mr. Chairman, I have not always held the opinion 
that UFOs were worthy of serious scientific study. I began my work as a scientific consultant to the U.S. Air Force as an open skeptic, in the firm belief that we were dealing with a mental aberration and a public nuisance. Only in the face of stubborn facts and data similar to those studied by the French Commission have I been forced to change my opinion. The UFO phenomenon, as studied by my colleagues and myself, bespeaks the action of some form of intelligence. But once this intelligence springs, whether it is truly extraterrestrial or bespeaks a higher reality, not yet recognized by science, or even if it be in some way or another a strange psychic manifestation of our own intelligence, is much the question. We seek your help, Mr. Chairman, in assisting scientists, and particularly those already associated with the many formal and informal investigative organizations around the world, by providing a clearinghouse procedure whereby the work already going on globally can be brought together in, in a serious, concentrated approach to this most outstanding challenge to the current science. You can find Our Strange Skies on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, TuneIn, and most podcast apps. We are on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Just search the term Our Strange Skies. We also have a Facebook group called In Gray We Trust, a group for those who look up into Our Strange Skies. Join us. Share your love for this phenomena. Yeah! Our logo was designed by Tessa Brown, and our theme song was composed by Shane Yoder over at PutThemInASong.com. And folks, right now, PutThemInASong.com has a deal for all of my listeners. If you're thinking of starting a podcast and are in the market for a theme song or like mood music or a custom song, hell, even a ringtone, Head on over to PutThemInASong.com and enter the code STRANGE at checkout, and you'll receive 30% off orders over $50. It's a hell of a deal. So take advantage of it while you can. Again, enter the promo code STRANGE at checkout for 30% off all orders over $50. Finally, don't forget to look up, because you never know what you'll find in our strange skies. In Gray We Trust. Duvid Media.